Section 15 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates by Howard Pyle. Compiled by Merrill Johnson. Chapter 7 Captain Scarfield. Preface. The author of this narrative cannot recall that, in any history of the famous pirates, he has ever read a detailed and sufficient account of the life and death of Captain John Scarfield. Doubtless some data concerning his death and the destruction of his schooner might be gathered from the report of Lieutenant Mannering, now filed in the archives of the Navy Department, but beyond such bold and bloodless narrative the author knows of nothing, unless it be the little chapbook history published by Isaiah Thomas in Newburyport about the year 1821-22, entitled A True History of the Life and Death of Captain Jack Scarfield. This lack of particularity in the history of one so notable in his profession, it is the design of the present narrative in a measure to supply, and, if the author has seen fit to cast it in the form of a fictional story, it is only that it may make more easy reading for those who see fit to follow the tale from this to its conclusion. Captain Scarfield Section 1 Eliezer Cooper, or Captain Cooper, as was his better-known title in Philadelphia, was a prominent member of the Society of Friends. He was an overseer of the meeting and an occasional speaker upon particular occasions. When at home from one of his many voyages, he never failed to occupy his seat in the meeting both on first day and fifth day, and he was regarded by his fellow townsmen as a model of business integrity and of domestic responsibility. More incidental to this history, however, it is to be narrated that Captain Cooper was one of those trading skippers who carried their own merchandise and their own vessels, which they sailed themselves, and on whose decks they did their own bartering. His vessel was a swift, large schooner, the Eliza Cooper, of Philadelphia, named for his wife. His cruising grounds were the West India Islands, and his merchandise was flour and cornmeal ground at the Brandywine Mills at Wilmington, Delaware. During the War of 1812 he had earned, as was very well known, an extraordinary fortune in his trading. For flour and cornmeal sold at fabulous prices in the French, Spanish, Dutch and Danish islands, cut off, as they were, from the rest of the world by the British blockade. The running of this blockade was one of the most hazardous maritime ventures possible, but Captain Cooper had met with such unvaried success, and had sold his merchandise at such incredible profit, that, at the end of the war, he found himself to have become one of the wealthiest merchants of his native city. It was known at one time that his balance in the mechanic's bank was greater than that of any other individual depositor upon the books, and it was told of him that he had once deposited in the bank a chest of foreign silver coin, the exchanged value of which, when translated into American currency, was upward of $42,000, a prodigious sum of money in those days. In person, Captain Cooper was tall and angular of frame. His face was thin and severe, wearing continually an unsmiling, mask-like expression of continent and unruffled sobriety. His manner was dry and taciturn, and his conduct and life were measured to the most absolute accord with the teaching of his religious belief. 
He lived in an old-fashioned house on Front Street, below Spruce, as pleasant, cheerful a house as ever a trading captain could return to. At the back of the house a lawn sloped steeply down toward the river. To the south stood the wharf and storehouses, to the north an orchard and kitchen garden bloomed with abundant verdure. Two large chestnut trees sheltered the porch and a little space of lawn, and when you sat under them, in the shade, you looked down the slope between two rows of box-bushes directly across the shining river to the Jersey shore. At the time of our story, that is, about the year 1820, this property had increased very greatly in value, but it was the old home of the Coopers, as Eliezer Cooper was entirely rich enough to indulge his fancy in such matters. Accordingly, as he chose to live in the same house where his father and his grandfather had dwelt before him, he peremptorily, if quietly, refused all offers looking toward the purchase of the lot of ground, though it was now worth five or six times its former value. As was said, it was a cheerful, pleasant home, impressing you when you entered it with a feeling of spotless and all-pervading cleanliness, a cleanliness that greeted you in the shining brass door-knocker, that entertained you in the sitting-room with its stiff, leather-covered furniture, the brass-headed tacks whereof sparkled like so many stars, a cleanliness that bade you farewell in the spotless stretch of sand-sprinkled hallway the wooden floor of which was worn into knobs around the nail-heads by the countless scorings and scrubbings to which it had been subjected, and which left behind them an all-pervading faint, fragrant odour of soap and warm water. Eliezer Cooper and his wife were childless, but one inmate made the great, silent, shady house bright with life. Lucinda Fairbanks, a niece of Captain Cooper's by his only sister, was a handsome, sprightly girl of eighteen or twenty, and a great favourite in the Quaker society of the city. It remains only to introduce the final, and perhaps the most important, actor of the narrative, Lieutenant James Mannering. During the past twelve months or so, he had been a frequent visitor at the Cooper house. At this time he was a broad-shouldered, red-cheeked, stalwart fellow of twenty-six or twenty-eight. He was a great social favourite, and possessed the added romantic interest of having been aboard the Constitution when she fought the Guerriere, and of having, with his own hands, touched the match that fired the first gun of that great battle. Mannering's mother and Eliza Cooper had always been intimate friends, and the coming and going of the young man during his leave of absence were looked upon in the house as quite a matter of course. Half a dozen times a week he would drop in to execute some little commission for the ladies, or, if Captain Cooper was at home, to smoke a pipe of tobacco with him, to sip a dram of his famous old Jamaica rum, or to play a rubber of checkers of an evening. It is not likely that either of the older people was the least aware of the real cause of his visits. Still less did they suspect that any passages of sentiment had passed between the young people. The truth was that Mannering and the young lady were very deeply in love. It was a love that they were obliged to keep a profound secret, for not only had Eliezer Cooper held the strictest sort of testimony against the late war, a testimony so rigorous as to render it altogether unlikely that one of so military a profession as Mannering practised could hope for his consent to a suit for marriage, but Lucinda could not have married one not a member of the Society of Friends without losing her own birthright membership therein. She herself might not attach much weight to such a loss of membership in the Society, but her fear of and her respect for her uncle led her to walk very closely in her path of duty in this respect. Accordingly, she and Mannering met as they could, clandestinely, 
and the stolen moments were very sweet. With equal secrecy, Lucinda had, at the request of her lover, sat for a miniature portrait to Mrs. Gregory, which miniature, set in a gold medallion, Mannering, with a mild, sentimental pleasure, wore hung around his neck and beneath his shirt frill next his heart. In the month of April of the year 1820, Mannering received orders to report at Washington. During the preceding autumn, the West India pirates, and notably Captain Jack Scarfield, had been more than usually active, and the loss of the packet Marblehead, which, sailing from Charleston, South Carolina, was never heard of more, was attributed to them. Two other coasting vessels off the coast of Georgia had been looted and burned by Scarfield, and the government had at last aroused itself to the necessity of active measures for repressing these pests of the West India waters. Mannering received orders to take command of the Yankee, a swift, light-draft, heavily armed brig of war, and to cruise about the Bahama Islands, and to capture and destroy all the pirates' vessels he could there discover. On his way from Washington to New York, where the Yankee was then waiting orders, Mannering stopped in Philadelphia to bid good-bye to his many friends in that city. He called at the old Cooper house. It was on a Sunday afternoon. The spring was early, and the weather extremely pleasant that day, being filled with a warmth almost as of summer. The apple-trees were already in full bloom, and filled all the air with their fragrance. Everywhere there seemed to be the pervading hum of bees, and the drowsy, tepid sunshine was very delightful. At that time Eliezer was just home from an unusually successful voyage to Antigua. Mannering found the family sitting under one of the still leafless chestnut trees, Captain Cooper smoking his long clay pipe and lazily perusing a copy of the National Gazette. Eliezer listened with a great deal of interest to what Mannering had to say of his proposed cruise. He himself knew a great deal about the pirates, and, singularly unbending from his moral, stiff taciturnity, he began telling of what he knew— particularly of Captain Scarfield, in whom he appeared to take an extraordinary interest. Vastly to Mannering's surprise, the old Quaker assumed the position of a defendant of the pirates, protesting that the wickedness of the accused was enormously exaggerated. He declared that he knew some of the freebooters very well, and that at the most they were poor, misdirected wretches, who had, by easy gradation, slid into their present evil ways, from having been tempted by the government authorities to enter into privateering in the days of the late war. He conceded that Captain Scarfield had done many cruel and wicked deeds, but he averred that he had also performed many kind and benevolent actions. The world made no note of these latter, but took care only to condemn the evil that had been done. He acknowledged that it was true that the pirate had allowed his crew to cast lots for the wife and the daughter of the skipper of the Northern Rose, but there were none of his accusers who told how, at the risk of his own life and the lives of all his crew, he had given succour to the schooner Halifax, found adrift with all hands down with yellow fever. There was no defender of his actions to tell how he and his crew of pirates had sailed the pest-stricken vessel almost into the rescuing waters of Kingston Harbour. Eliezer confessed that he could not deny that when Scarfield had tied the skipper of the Baltimore Bell naked to the foremast of his own brig, he had permitted his crew of cutthroats, who were drunk at the time, to throw bottles at the helpless captive, who died that night of the wounds he had received. For this he was doubtless very justly condemned, but who was there to praise him, when he had, at the risk of his life and in the face of the authorities, carried a cargo of provisions which he himself had purchased at Tampa Bay, 
to the island of Bella Vista after the great hurricane of 1818. In this notable adventure he had barely escaped, after a two days' chase, the British frigate Ceres, whose captain, had a capture been effected, would instantly have hung the unfortunate man to the yard-arm, in spite of the beneficent mission he was in the act of conducting. In all this, Eliezer had the air of conducting the case for the defendant. As he talked, he became more and more animated and voluble. The light went out in his tobacco pipe, and a hectic spot appeared in either thin and sallow cheek. Mannering sat wondering to hear the severely peaceful Quaker preacher defending so notoriously bloody and cruel a cut-throat pirate as Captain Jack Scarfield. The warm and innocent surroundings, the old brick house looking down upon them, the odour of apple-blossoms and the hum of bees seemed to make it all the more incongruous. And still the elderly Quaker skipper talked on and on with hardly an interruption, till the warm sun slanted to the west and the day began to decline. That evening Mannering stayed to tea, and when he parted from Lucinda Fairbanks it was after nightfall, with a clear round moon shining in the milky sky, and a radiance, pallid and unreal, enveloping the old house, the blooming apple-trees, the sloping lawn, and the shining river beyond. He implored his sweetheart to let him tell her uncle and aunt of their acknowledged love, and to ask the old man's consent to it, but she would not permit him to do so. They were so happy as they were. Who knew but what her uncle might forbid their fondness? Would he not wait a little longer? Maybe it would all come aright after a while. She was so fond, so tender, so tearful, at the nearness of their parting, that he had not the heart to insist. At the same time it was with a feeling of almost of despair that he realized that he must now be gone, maybe for the space of two years, without in all that time possessing the right to call her his before the world. When he bade farewell to the older people, it was with a choking feeling of bitter disappointment. He yet felt the pressure of her cheek against his shoulder, the touch of soft and velvet lips to his own. But what were such clandestine endearments compared to what might, perchance, be his, the right of calling her his own when he was far away and upon the distant sea? And, besides, he felt like a coward who had shirked his duty. But he was very much in love. The next morning appeared in a drizzle of rain that followed the beautiful warmth of the day before. He had the coach all to himself, and in the damp and leathery solitude he drew out the little oval picture from beneath his shirt-frill, and looked long and fixedly with a fond and foolish joy at the innocent face, the blue eyes, the red smiling lips depicted upon the satin-like ivory surface. Section 2 for the better part of five months, Mannering cruised about in the waters surrounding the Bahama Islands. In that time he ran to earth and dispersed a dozen nests of pirates. He destroyed no less than fifteen piratical crafts of all sizes, from a large half-decked whale-boat to a three-hundred-ton barkentine. The name of the Yankee became a terror to every sea-wolf in the western tropics, and the waters of the Bahama Islands became swept almost clean of the bloody wretches who had so lately infested it. But the one freebooter of all others whom he sought, Captain Jack Scarfield, seemed to evade him like a shadow, to slip through his fingers like magic. Twice he came almost within touch of the famous marauder, both times the ominous wrecks that the pirate captain had left behind him. 
The first of these was the water-locked remains of a burned and still smoking wreck that he found adrift in the great Bahama Channel. It was the Water Witch of Salem, but he did not learn her tragic story until two weeks later he discovered a part of her crew at Port Maria, on the north coast of Jamaica. It was, indeed, a dreadful story to which he listened. The castaways said that they of all the vessel's crew had been spared so that they might tell the commander of the Yankee, should they meet him, that he might keep what he found, with Captain Scarfield's compliments, who served it up to him hot-cooked. Three weeks later he rescued what remained of the crew of the shattered, bloody hulk of the Baltimore Bell, eight of whose crew, headed by the captain, had been tied hand and foot and heaved overboard. Again there was a message from Captain Scarfield to the commander of the Yankee that he might season what he found to suit his own taste. Mannering was of a sanguine disposition, with a fiery temper. He swore with the utmost vehemence that either he or John Scarfield would have to leave the earth. He had little suspicion of how soon was to befall the ominous realization of his angry prophecy. At that time, one of the chief rendezvous of the pirates was the little island of San Jose, one of the southernmost of the Bahama group. Here, in the days before the coming of the Yankee, they were wont to put in to careen and clean their vessels, and to take in a fresh supply of provisions, gunpowder and rum, preparatory to renewing their attacks upon the peaceful commerce circulating up and down outside the islands, or through the wide stretches of the Bahama Channel. Mannering had made several descents upon this nest of freebooters. He had already made two notable captures, and it was here he hoped eventually to capture Captain Scarfield himself. A brief description of this one-time notorious rendezvous of freebooters might not be out of place. It consisted of a little settlement of those wattled and mud-smeared houses such as you find through the West Indies. There were only three houses of a more pretentious sort, built of wood. One of these was a storehouse, another was a rum-shop, and a third a house in which dwelt a mulatto woman who was reputed to be a sort of left-handed wife of Captain Scarfield's. The population was almost entirely black and brown. One or two Jews and a half-dozen Yankee traders of hardly dubious honesty comprised the entire white population. The rest consisted of a mongrel accumulation of negroes and mulattoes and half-caste Spaniards, and of a multitude of black or yellow women and children. The settlement stood in a bight of the beach forming a small harbour and affording a fair anchorage for small vessels excepting it were against the beating of a south-easterly gale. The houses, or cabins, were surrounded by clusters of cocoa-palms and growths of bananas, and a long curve of white beach, sheltered from the large Atlantic breakers that burst and exploded upon an outer bar, was drawn like a necklace round the semicircle of emerald-green water. Such was the famous pirate settlement of San Jose, a paradise of nature, and a hell of human depravity and wickedness and it was to this spot that Mannering paid another visit a few days after rescuing the crew of the Baltimore Bell from a shattered and sinking wreck. As the little bay with its fringe of palms and its cluster of wattle huts opened up to view, Mannering discovered a vessel lying at anchor in the little harbour. It was a large and well-rigged schooner of two hundred and fifty or three hundred tons burden. As the Yankee rounded to under the stern of the stranger, and dropped anchor in such a position as to bring her broadside battery to bear should the occasion require. Mannering set his glass to his eye to read the name he could distinguish beneath the overhang of her stern. It is impossible, 
to describe his infinite surprise when, the white lettering starting out in the circle of the glass, he read, The Eliza Cooper of Philadelphia. He could not believe the evidence of his senses. Certainly this sink of iniquity was the last place in the world he would have expected to have fallen in with Eliezer Cooper. He ordered out the gig and had himself immediately rowed over to the schooner. Whatever lingering doubts he might have entertained as to the identity of the vessel were quickly dispelled when he beheld Captain Cooper himself standing at the gangway to meet him. The impassive face of the friend showed neither surprise nor confusion at what must have been to him a most unexpected encounter. But when he stepped upon the deck of the Eliza Cooper and looked about him, Mannering could hardly believe the evidence of his senses at the transformation that he beheld. Upon the main deck were eight twelve-pound carronade, neatly covered with tarpaulin. In the bow a long tom, also snugly stowed away and covered, directed a veiled and muscled snout out over the bowsprit. It was entirely impossible for Mannering to conceal his astonishment at so unexpected a sight, and whether or not his own thoughts lent colour to his imagination, it seemed to him that Eliezer Cooper concealed under the immobility of his countenance no small degree of confusion. After Captain Cooper had led the way into the cabin, and he and the younger man were seated over a pipe of tobacco and the invariable bottle of fine old Jamaica rum, Mannering made no attempt to refrain from questioning him as to the reason for this singular and ominous transformation. "'I am a man of peace, James Mannering,' Eliezer replied, "'but there are men of blood in these waters, and an appearance of great strength is of use to protect the innocent from the wicked. If I remained in appearance the peaceful trader I really am, how long does he suppose I could remain unassailed in this place?' It occurred to Mannering that the powerful armament he had beheld was rather extreme to be used merely as a preventive. He smoked for a while in silence, and then he suddenly asked the other point-blank whether, if it came to blows with such a one as Captain Scarfield, would he make a fight of it. The Quaker trading captain regarded him for a while in silence. His look, it seemed to Mannering, appeared to be dubitative as to how far he dared to be frank. "'Friend James,' he said at last, I may as well acknowledge that my officers and crew are somewhat worldly. Of a truth, they do not hold the same testimony as I. I am inclined to think that if it came to the point of a broil with those men of iniquity, my individual voice cast for peace would not be sufficient to keep my crew from meeting violence with violence. As for myself, thee knows who I am, and what is my testimony in these matters." Mannering made no comment as to the extremely questionable manner in which the Quaker proposed to beat the devil about the stump. Presently he asked his second question. "'And might I inquire,' he said, "'what you are doing here, and why you find it necessary to come at all into such a wicked, dangerous place as this?' "'Indeed, I knew thee would ask that question of me,' said the friend, "'and I will be entirely frank with thee. These men of blood are, after all, but human beings,' and as human beings they need food. I have at present upon this vessel upward of two hundred and fifty barrels of flour which will bring a higher price here than anywhere else in the West Indies. To be entirely frank with thee, I will tell thee that I was engaged in making a bargain for the sale of the greater part of my merchandise when the news of thy approach drove away my best customer. Mannering sat for a while in smoking silence. What the other had told him explained many things he had not before understood. 
It explained why Captain Cooper got almost as much for his flour and cornmeal now that peace had been declared as he had obtained when the war and the blockade were in full swing. It explained why he had been so strong a defender of Captain Scarfield and the pirates that afternoon in the garden. Meantime, what was to be done? Eliezer confessed openly that he dealt with the pirates. What now was his, Mannering's, duty in the case? Was the cargo of the Eliza Cooper contraband and subject to confiscation? And then another question framed itself in his mind. Who was this customer whom his approach had driven away? As though he had formulated the inquiry into speech, the other began directly to speak of it. I know, he said, that in a moment thee will ask me who was this customer of whom I have just now spoken. I have no desire to conceal his name from thee. It was the man who is known as Captain Jack, or Captain John Scarfield. Mannering fairly started from his seat. The devil, you say, he cried, and how long has it been, he asked, since he left you? The Quaker skipper carefully refilled his pipe, which he had by now smoked out. I would judge, he said, that it is a matter of four or five hours since news was brought over land by means of swift runners of thy approach. Immediately the man of wickedness disappeared. Here Eliezer set the bowl of his pipe to the candle flame and began puffing out voluminous clouds of smoke. I would have thee understand, James Mannering, he resumed, that I am no friend of this wicked and sinful man. His safety is nothing to me. It is only a question of buying upon his part and of selling upon mine. If it is any satisfaction to thee, I will heartily promise to bring thee news if I hear anything of the man of Belial. I may furthermore say that I think it is likely thee will have news more or less directly of him within the space of a day. If this should happen, however, thee will have to do thy own fighting without help from me, for I am no man of combat nor of blood, and will take no hand in it either way. It struck Mannering that the words contained some meaning that did not appear upon the surface. This significance struck him as so ambiguous that when he went aboard the Yankee he confided as much of his suspicions as he saw fit to his second-in-command, Lieutenant Underwood. As night descended he had a double watch set and had everything prepared to repel any attack or surprise that might be attempted. End of section 15